Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with an expert on the gaming revival, spoke to a leading candidate for mayor, and heard from one of Chicago's best new writers. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for July 6, 2018. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with games expert Jess Tolkowski about the resurgence in board games and the trends ahead. Jess talks puzzles, wet gaming, the mathematics of board games, and about Jamie's deep psychological problems with the whole thing. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time, at 4 p.m. And we have a special guest, not from Undertown. <laughs> not today, anyway. <laughs> at, five, at 5 o'clock, it'll, you'll be from Undertown. That's actually my... It's a little confusing. That's my popular character, Jessica Tilkowski, uh, <laughs> that I play. As played by Jessica <laughs> As played by me, <laughs> Jessica Tilkowski. Well, welcome to the show. Thank right you. There. So we, you are not here to talk about Undertown. You're here to talk about games because in your real life, as opposed to your virtual life, <laughs> you, you uh, run a store called Cat and Mouse Games, which has been a good friend to Lumpen. In fact, we're sitting, I believe, in Cat and Mouse games chairs That's here in, in the studio. I know I felt very comfortable. You did feel very comfortable. And we asked you here today because uh, games have suddenly become uh, extremely hot again, especially with adults. And so we kind of wanted to get the skinny from you on just what's going on here because people seem to be doing all these crazy things and we don't know anything about them and you do. So what's going on? Well, I mean, I can tell you what's going on. It's that people are buying a lot of games, but I don't know that I can tell you why. Uh, there's a lot of factors, like anything sort of social that way. Uh, I think that nerd culture has mainstreamed in a huge way with Marvel, with tech jobs being the most desirable jobs. Like all of a sudden, people who maybe were gaming before are no longer embarrassed to tell everyone that they are gaming that culturally we've come to a place where uh, it's okay to spend two hours focusing on a bunch of pieces of, of cardboard and small bits of wood. Uh, I think that's been a big part of it. It's also the internet, <laughs> which sounds sort of counterintuitive because they're, they're physical games, but the internet letting people connect with each other about what games are good to promote new games. Uh, I, Chicago is a, a big hub, I think, for uh, toy design. Historically, uh, Marvin Glass and Associates, um, like from the 20s really to today, there's a lot of toy invention that happens in Chicago. And uh, Cards Against Humanity, of course, is based here. Um, for better or for worse, that game was huge. Uh, really like the, the biggest initial Kickstarter success. And now Kickstarter is such a driving force <laughs> uh, for board games. But... Um, yeah, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the stew of mm -hmm. gaming right now. <laughs> well, I think that you said something kind of interesting, and it's counterintuitive. Do you think the fact that the internet has such a big hold on our lives, uh, from everything from streaming video and Netflix, Netflix is an internet-based service, to just what? daily communication <laughs> and all that stuff? Do you think that the the success and and the the, the revitalization of board games and role-playing games is due to the fact that people have to spend so much time on the internet in their daily jobs and are looking to get away from that? I think it's certainly a factor. Uh, I think that's a very pat, you know, that, that explanation comes up a lot and I think it's very tidy. Um, and I don't think that it really explains all of what's happening, but uh, for sure when you like spend your whole day isolated, uh, there's something really like emotionally reassuring, you know, physical primate 
interest of spending some time with people not really focused on a screen, you know, because games are more than anything else, something to do that isn't just drinking or staring at the television. Uh, It's a way to connect with another person. And so once you start doing that, uh, your brain kind of remembers what it's like to talk to someone. <laughs> uh, and it's especially, you know, you mentioned role-playing games. Uh, we've seen just like an amazing explosion in RPGs over the last probably three or four years. Um, and part of that, you know, it's there's so many little factors. The bump we saw after Stranger Things in Dungeons & Dragons was <laughs> hilarious. Uh, I mean, a lot of the people came coming in didn't even necessarily know what they wanted, but they knew that they wanted to know more. Right. So I am guilty of that in your store, but not because of Stranger Things. It was I was going to Level Leader eight eight eight, and I had to pick up die uh, on my it's way dice. in. It's dice. It's dice, Jamie. For the so, record, okay, John. A, a <laughs> single sorry. die. Well, well it was it up. was a single Multiple twenty dice. sided die. Okay, well, um, I had to pick up a die, but it was the store on Madison. Regardless. Yeah. Oh man, we got there was a lot of a dice. massive Pokemon uh, tournament going on in there. <laughs> uh, the kids are very into Pokemon again, and it, it makes my heart happy because uh, they're so like listening to kids trash talk each other is like <laughs> the best because they're not that good at it, but like you know they're gonna be. We're, we coach them on Pokemon, and I really want to coach them on how to insult each other, but I. I I don't do that. That's most. probably probably a good idea. <laughs> Can you take us through? Uh, there's a lot to un- there's a lot of things. I mean, I'm I'm not a gamer. Um, I'm completely game agnostic. I didn't grow up in a family that that played games. Uh, whereas my wife likes games and likes puzzles and stuff like that. So we just sit on opposite sides of the room while she plays games with you guys, and I, I read a book. <laughs> but take it, it just for people that don't know anything about it, like myself. What's the difference between a board game, an RPG, uh, some of these card games? Are there different categories in these games? Do they they do people interact with them in different ways? Sure, uh, there are lots of different categories of games, and you can even, I think, those categories are easy to break up. A board game in general has a like a, a manifestation on the table, uh, whether that's tiles or actually a board, um, and a card game obviously is card based, but it's not necessarily like there are very serious very structured card games and there are goofy light not very intellectual board games there's not such a useful distinction between the two as far as um, people who like card games versus people who like board games role-playing games or rpgs are games played in the imagination (laughs) with your mind and usually with a set of dice uh, used to sort of randomize your success in encounters. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the lines between all of those are super flexible. You know, there are card game versions of popular board games. There are role playing games that rely heavily on a grid map. So they, they move towards something like a war game. Uh, Role playing games, you know, the most famous one is Dungeons and Dragons, which is in its fifth edition. Uh, originally published in like 1977, but there are so many indie role-playing games now that focus on different things. I I just played one the other night uh, where you tear off pieces of your character sheet and burn them for power during the game in a bowl, (laughs) like physically light them on fire. Uh, and then when you've run out of candles to extinguish around the bowl, the game is over. I mean, there's there's a lot of wild. <laughs> what, what was this game? It's I think it's called Ten Candles. Um, I 
I shouldn't be talking about that one because it's uh, online only. We do not have it at the store. Don't come see me. But <laughs> we do have a ton of indie RPGs, and they're so fun to play. It's it's fun to get to create something with your friends, especially if you're not musical <laughs> like yeah. me. Uh-huh. Uh, the act of kind of getting together and telling a story uh, with a f- sort of a framework to make it a little less, you know, granola hippie, I think is valuable for a lot of people. <laughs> so what are some of the more popular, you mentioned Cards Against Humanity, that's a that's a huge game. I think Dungeons and Dragons, everybody knows. Shadowrun, obviously. I have no idea what you're talking about. Shadowrun's there. an RPG, also in a new edition. There's uh, Some people came in actually today looking for Shadowrun. But what are some of the popular games that are, I mean, I, I see kids around here, they're playing Settlers of Catan, they're playing uh, Secret Hitler. Ooh, you uh, want to know a new trend? Sure, I would love to know, I'd love to know a new trend. Trend spotting with Jess Tilkowski. No, uh, there's a big thing right now, which I'm very into, which is uh, puzzly games, games with, um, I mean, the best way, the, the most popular kind of beginning of this wave was Splendor, which is a, a game where you play as as gem merchants, basically trading gems for larger gem mines, which pay out more gems. And then at the end of the game, somebody hits a certain number of sort of wealth prestige points and they win. The theme, honestly, is not that important. The, the game is that you are all kind of playing off of a center array and the rules are very simple in Splendor and in all of these sort of new puzzly games. But the the big thread between all of them is that you're competing against other players for resources, but you're not trying to wipe them off the board. There's not like a direct conflict. It's all about using the pieces that you've been given or the, the things that are available to you in the most intelligent way possible to like score the maximum number of points. And practically what that means is that if you're gonna win or lose the game, it's because you're smart and not necessarily because you like dominated all the other players. So a lot of them play well with lower player counts. We sell a ton of two player games because it's hard <laughs> as adults to get all of your friends to come over. Uh, and they're also like, uh, I don't wanna say gentle, like they're competitive, but there's not the thing where like in risk you're losing for <laughs> two hours mm-hmm. and you just have to like sit there and lose with no opportunity to sort of catch up. I have two older brothers, so this might be kind of personal <laughs> It's a personal me. problem. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot easier to get people to play a game when they're going to be able to be engaged and involved uh, throughout the game, even if they don't win. Uh, working on something that is interesting. So that's the big trend now is is things that are more abstract and more puzzly while you are still all playing one game. Hitting Left spoke with mayoral candidate Lori Lightfoot about her chances in the pending elections. Lightfoot spoke about her perceived advantages and disadvantages, what might happen in a runoff, and the weaknesses of our current city hall. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. So, uh, so you come, uh, you come from Ohio, and then you uh, you uh, went to law school, and you went to work for what Meyer Brown? I did. Yeah. And uh, you were involved. What got you into politics? I mean, well, you know, I, I've always been very interested in, in government and policy. Um, and that, of course, leads one to, to politics. I worked on the Hill for a couple of years after uh, uh, undergrad 
And, you know, as you well know, Chicago city politics is a fascinating animal. Um, it's why we came here. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a fascinating thing. And, you know, look, in the, in the era of Trump, um, municipal government and local government, I think, becomes even more important uh, because you really have the ability to affect the quality of people's lives on a day-to-day basis. There's much more immediate uh, impact. And frankly, um, even after this really d- difficult week, um, I think it's critically important that we are all in on caring about our city, making sure that we've got the right set of values. And those, those values are articulated in the policies that we advocate for. You're not um, ready to jump off a building or move to Canada. No, you know, like. look, it, it, I spent a lot of time listening to sports talk radio, so I don't have to fill my brain with all the craziness that's going on from <laughs> Washington. Um, but I do think it's critically uh, important that we not lose hope. Um, because if we lose hope, we're ceding ground to the crazy people, frankly, want to destroy our values. So I, I, it's discouraging, but this is a time where we got to pick ourselves back up. we got to make sure that organizations who are going to bring the fight um, to stop a lot of these policies like the ACLU, Sierra Club, and, and so forth, that they're all, pick, pick your issue, that they're all fully funded. But now is the time for us to step up and not be silent. So, uh you, you jumped into this mayor's race mm-hmm. uh, along with eight, uh, eight other folks. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, there's lots of descriptions, but I'll say it's a lot of folks who have t- uh, t- tossed I was going to give you seven reasons why you can't win and let you refute me. But uh, you Go know ahead, all man. those. So, so tell me why, uh, why Rom can be beat. Well, I, he, yeah. he's, he's absolutely beatable. I mean, frankly, the fact that so many people have jumped into the race, I think, speaks to that. What our polling says is that this guy is stuck in the low 30s uh, in approval, approval rating and that well over 60 percent of people who are surveyed uh, are interested um, in a different choice because they think the city is going in the wrong direction. Even among his most ardent supporters, he can't get to 50 percent. So there's a, there's a race there, and there's a victory to be had. And I think the victory um, is going to go to the person who can put together uh, a progressive coalition of folks from all across the city. No one's going to win with a narrow constituency. No one's going to win, and, and I'll speak to myself, I can't win if I'm the, just the black candidate. I've got to galvanize support all across the city. And frankly, looking across the landscape, I believe that of the people that are in a race, and frankly, the people who are circling around the periphery, I'm the only candidate that can actually put together that kind of winning coalition. And that's what we're working very hard to do. It's kind of interesting how politics get get turned upside down, you know, as, as was the case with in New York. Yep. Uh, with uh, Ocasio-Cortez. You're talking about, I can't win just by being a a black candidate, but you're also a a gay candidate, a woman candidate. Those those used to be like three strikes uh, and you're out, right? (laughs) That's a triple threat, right? A triple threat. But look, I think we're in in a very different time. Um, The fact that I can run as an openly gay candidate with a married, with a child, um, speaks to, I think, uh, the way in the, the journey that we've traveled um, on, on, uh, on along the way to open up opportunities for LGBTQ people. And I frankly think most people in the city don't care who you love, and, and particularly when it comes to the mayor's race, they want to know, um, are you smart enough? Do you have the judgment? Do you have the bandwidth and the experience? And are you tough enough? Uh, to run the third largest city in the country. And I'm here to tell everybody that the answers to all those questions are yes. But even in the last, even in the, the last time Ron ran, yep. 
the, the racial component of the election, as much as things have changed, even since the days when Harold mm -hmm. Harold won, uh, there was still a racial component. This is po this is Chicago no, politics, after don't, all. Don't get me wrong; race uh, absolutely matters. What yeah. I'm what I'm saying is and, that. And, and uh, what I was going to ask go about was uh, has to do with the the thing that I think most uh, people who follow this stuff have, have pointed out is the lack of uh, of a Latino candidate in the, mm -hmm. in the race and the and the and the task of trying to unite a a, 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 a coalition to defeat the, the mayor. That involves uh, a broader, like you say, a broader, a broader movement than just one one community. And uh, how does it complicate matters? How does the lack, the the whole division, the longstanding division among communities in the city, yeah. uh, matter in your in the race? Well, I, look, I. This is Chicago. We unfortunately still live in one of the most segregated cities in the country, and race matters. Um, but my view of that is, what we need to be doing as public officials, and certainly somebody who aspires to be the mayor of the city, it's, it's both a challenge and an opportunity to go out to every community in the city of Chicago to let people know who I am, to listen to them. And I'm going to say that again, to listen to them, because I think, frankly, what a lot of people feel like is government's irrelevant to them. Government takes and takes and um, doesn't give anything of value to them. And if we can't motivate people, if we can't see, um, get them to understand and acknowledge that government matters, that elections matter, and excite them about the possibility of retaking their city, frankly, we will have failed, um, and I think an important opportunity. So I'm not ceding any ground anywhere, and I'm certainly not a person that anyone would describe as naive, but I think we've got to if we're going to win, if we're going to have a really new progressive vision for the city, we have got to put aside some of the racial and ethnic and other divides and find our commonality and move forward together um, in a way that, that I think points in a different direction for the city. The status quo, which is racial divisions, parochial interests, that's failed us. In every in every imagination, through every measure, the status quo has failed us. Well, the, so the we've big, got to be able to break the big race that. question, or yeah. one of them at least, was uh, the history of police uh, abuse in the city, yeah. the, the Quan McDonald, all of which you were involved with uh, uh, as uh, as as part of the police uh, uh, review uh, uh, commission, whatever mm -hmm. it's called then and now. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about your role in all sure. that? And yeah, I'm happy to. And let me let me clarify um, your, your yeah. setup for the question. Um, I became the president of the police board in July of 15, and I came into the police board at a time that the police board agreed with the superintendent's recommendations for firing officers only 35 percent of the time. Now, there's a lot of things that I think were at at work. Um, that that rolled up into that number. But one of the things I did was made sure um, that we got the best information available for the police board to be able to make better judgments, um, that we I made sure that our folks were well-trained so that they really understood um, what it meant to be a police officer in very difficult circumstances in policing in, in urban America. Uh, I made sure, frankly, that the advocacy um, on all sides was of the highest quality and frankly that our hearing officers were doing everything that they could to make sure that the record that finally came to the police board was as fulsome as possible so that we could make decisions um, based on frankly a better record. And if you look at my time on the police board. Which uh, started yeah, when? Which started in July of 15 and ended 
uh, in April of this year. Uh, if you look at the track record, and certainly not that there was any quotas, we probably fired more officers in my two-plus years on the police board than had happened probably in the previous 10 years. Um, and, and, and that's with, frankly, a reduced caseload because we weren't getting the same number of cases from IPRA and now COPA as we had been getting histo- historically. And, and, and we, we, we worked together well um, to get it right. Again, no quotas, no thumb on the scale as to what the outcome was be. But the reality is, if people don't feel like there's a, a measure of accountability for police officers who have demonstrated that they are no longer fit for duty for whatever reason, and we got a variety of different cases that came before us, but if you don't have that internal check and legitimacy on the part of police officers, it undermines the hard work that officers the vast majority of whom are doing their job the right way every single day. Because people on the street, and we heard this over and over again, if, uh, if the average person messes up in some way that puts them uh, in the crosshairs of criminal conduct, we know what the consequence is going to be. They're going to be arrested, they're going to be prosecuted, and they're, they're on the horrible conveyor belt at 26th Street or Bridgeport or Markham or some other, other branch court. So people in those communities feel like, if I'm accountable for my conduct, officers absolutely have to be accountable for their their conduct. And we heard that loud and clear. If the great majority of of police officers, like you say, are doing their job and doing it the right way, Mm -hmm. and it's only a small uh, handful, bad apples, why do we need to spend uh, millions of dollars on a police academy? Well, uh, again, let me me clarify. We've got 12,000-plus sworn officers if we're at full strength. I do believe that the vast majority of them came on the job for the right reason and stay on the job for the right reason. The problem is not just a few bad apples, okay? The problem is there are systemic flaws in the way in which we recruit, we train, um, in which we continue to engage um, the community um, as a police department. And so while I think the vast majority of officers are really work hard every day to try to do the right thing, they're doing it in a system and in an environment that works against them, that undercuts those efforts. And that is fundamentally the problem. Yeah, the, the, frankly, the ones who are, you know, the criminals, they're easy to spot because their criminality, frankly, becomes obvious. And, and frankly, if you want to ask any officer if they're being truthful, who are the bad guys, who are the people that you don't want to work with, they know exactly who they are within their unit. The difficulty is the, the culture that doesn't support truthfulness, constitutionality, and respectful engagement with the community and valuing this respectful engagement with the community just as much, if not more so, than their gun and their badge. That's the thing that I've been advocating for because, you know, look, I think about those young kids in communities that have violence um, and crime raging all around them. They grow up in an environment with fear, where fear is the major organizing tool for them. We have to work hard to make sure that we get it right, that we get a constitutional police force, because we need to protect the most vulnerable people in our population. But it's, so, more, than the, it's more than just the police force, isn't it? I mean, look at this, absolutely. Uh, look at this uh, Realmo uh, case uh, where the courts just reversed the award to uh, the LaGreer family, and where you have a where you have a, a cop saying, uh, uh, where, well, here, I'll, I'll read your quote. Uh, the, the lawyer uh, asks Rialmo, you want the jury to give you money for killing Antonio LeGreer's kid? Rialmo paused, shrugged, and said, uh, yes. Well, look, that, that whole deal where Rialmo brings a countersuit 
against the estate of Quintonio Legrier is one of the most offensive things yeah. that I've ever seen in 30 plus years of practicing. And frankly, you can credit the lawyer. Realmo's lawyer is the same lawyer for, for Drew Peterson. And Alfred. that guy is, there's no kind words that I can say about him. But I think the larger issue, right, is that we have to get public safety right in this town. And where I thought you were going is, even if we accomplish all the things that, frankly, me and other people have recommended as needed changes and reforms within the police department, if we don't deal with the root cause of the violence that is raging in way too many of these neighborhoods. Which is what? Which is everything from, we have um, 40% of African-American kids live in poverty in this city. That is an outrageous and shocking number. We have many neighborhoods across the city where the unemployment rate is routinely at 25, 30 percent or higher at a time when, you know, the economists tell us we're essentially at full uh, employment, but not so in way too many of our neighborhoods. You drive around the south and the west side and, and the, the upper northeast area of the city, and it looks like a vast wasteland where maybe you have one house on a block, trash-strewn neighborhoods, nothing that looks like the kind of community anchors that we all take for granted and that we know are critically important to the stability of neighborhoods. We have neighborhoods where we have virtually no small business activity. And the little that's there, they're not hiring people, local residents. They're not empowering people to have economic freedom. And so the only thing that's left to a lot of these, these neighborhoods is the illegal economy. And, the, you know, I'm never going to be one who excuses crime, but people have to eat. People have to have dignity. People have to have the basic resources to take care of themselves and their family. And what we've left them to is an illegal economy that that continues to ravage those neighborhoods rather than uplift and support them. I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning, and I'm pilfering food and stuff from the GoPro. I'm pretty good at knowing exactly. Uh, I'm pretty good at, at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I I almost. Got, oh, who's that? What the? Who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't, like, plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want and where it is before you take it. What was that? All right. All right, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. Oh, oh, what was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I... It's gone. Okay, I gotta make this quick. All right. All right. I got the chips. Next time I list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need... Let's check the ice box. Uh, really... oh, oh, nice! Oh. Ah! My bad. Get off me! Ah, get off me! Oh. Oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face! This got scratched! Oh. Oh. I gotta get to the closet. Look, I get the... Alright. I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature 
with blades for hands was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. I gotta get the light. Come on out, you coward. Here it comes. I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. You sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? Sorry I scared you. Take my chips and salsa and be on my way. Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Joink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Whoa! Oh. Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words. This week on the Trump Diaries, Justice Kennedy retires, giving Trump a chance to cement a conservative court majority for a generation or more. The Janus decision guts public sector unions. A judge blocks Trump's zero tolerance policy at the border. Journalists are gunned down in Maryland. And Susan Collins says no. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 525, June 28th, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court, allowing Trump a chance to fundamentally shift the court to the right. He is expected to select an anti-Roe versus Wade conservative that would create a five-member conservative majority block. Kennedy was the court's leading champion of gay rights, but also joined the court's liberals in cases on abortion, affirmative action, and the death penalty. The Southern retirement jolted both parties ahead of the midterms. Trump says he will make his nomination by July 9th. In related news, Justice Kennedy's son, Justin, worked at Deutsche Bank for more than a decade, helping loan Trump more than $1 billion at a time when other banks wouldn't. Since 1998, Deutsche has loaned Trump at least $2.5 billion, of which at least $130 million is still outstanding. The Supreme Court dealt a huge blow to public sector unions, ruling in Janus that non-union members cannot be required to pay union fees despite being represented by the union in collective bargaining negotiations. That case overturned a 1977 decision that made the distinction that forcing non-members to pay for a union's political activities violated the First Amendment, but that it was constitutional to require non-members to help pay for the union's bargaining efforts. 
U.S. District Court Judge Dana Sabra issued a nationwide injunction that ordered the federal government to reunite migrant families separated under the Trump's zero-tolerance policy and to end family separations. Immigrant children as young as three have been ordered to appear in court without legal representation. In a related story, Jeff Sessions told a conservative forum that the outrage over separating migrant children from their families was a radicalized issue championed by the lunatic fringe living in gated communities. It has been revealed that Paul Manafort owes $10 million to a Russian oligarch who was sanctioned. Oleg Deopraska, who backed his work in the Ukraine, was sanctioned by the United States in April. Mueller also indicted Konstantin Kilmenich, a political operative who served as an intermediary between Manafort and Derespika, as well as allegedly having ties to Russian spy agencies. Manafort was now allegedly involved in a meeting between Russians and Trump at Trump Tower. The House again failed to pass an immigration bill 301 to 121. Trump had tweeted a last-minute all-caps message of support for the bill to no avail. As a result, there remains no resolution on the fate of the Dreamers. They were brought to the country illegally as children. Day 526, June 29th. Trump is now scheduled to meet Russian President Vladimir Putin in the next few weeks in Finland, according to National Security Advisor John Bolton. America's European allies are worried that Trump's meeting with Putin will undermine the NATO summit the way Trump clashed with his allies at the G7 summit and then went on to praise dictator Kim Jong-un. Trump also has been privately telling White House officials he wants the U.S. to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. Says one person to discuss the subject, quote, he's threatened to withdraw 100 times. It would totally screw us as a country. Trump's economic advisors have pushed back strongly. The House passed a resolution demanding the Justice Department turn over documents related to the Russian investigation. In a testy hearing with Rod Rosenstein, Republicans threatened him with impeachment. Republicans accused Rosenstein and FBI Director Christopher Wray of withholding details about surveillance tactics during the Russian investigation, claims both men strongly denied. Five people were killed and several others were gravely injured in a shooting at the Capitol Gazette newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland. That incident came days after former Breitbart writer Milo Yiannopoulos encouraged, quote, vigilante squads to start gunning journalists down on sight. Day 527, June 30th. Hundreds of thousands of Americans braved scorching temperatures this weekend to rally in protest of Trump's immigration policies. Here in Chicago, thousands rallied in the loop. The protests demanded an end to Trump's punitive zero-tolerance policies toward migrants seeking legal asylum in the United States. Trump may hold a second summit with Kim Jong-un in New York in September when world leaders are in town for the U.N. General Assembly. However, despite Trump's rosy claims, the North Koreans are continuing to enrich uranium despite promising to halt. And a podcast host known as Stuttering John tricked Trump into calling him from Air Force One. John Melendez, who often spoke with Trump when he was a sidekick in the Howard Stern show, told the White House switchboard operator he had Senator Bob Menendez on the line for him and said he had an urgent legislative matter to discuss. Trump then spoke with Stuttering John for six minutes from Air Force One, discussing immigration in the Supreme Court. The White House is investigating how this farce occurred. Day 528, July 1st. Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal attorney, said he will put, quote, family and country first as investigations continue into his conduct. Cohen's remarks in an off-camera interview with ABC's George Stephanopoulos suggest he is about to flip and cooperate with the Mueller investigation. Cohen added, quote, I will not be a punching bag as part of anyone's defense strategy. I am not the villain of this story, and I will not allow others to try to pick me in that way. A leaked report that says Trump is looking to walk away from the World Trade Organization is instead trying to adopt a so-called United States Fair and Reciprocal Tariff Act. Yes, the FART Act. That act has been widely resisted internally in the White House. It would see the USA abandon WTO rules, allowing Trumps to raise tariffs without the consent of Congress. It has been called a non-starter on Capitol Hill. 
Mexico held pivotal elections on Sunday with the leftist Andres Manuel López Obrador winning the presidency in a landslide. The election was marred by widespread campaign of intimidation with some 132 candidates in Mexico assassinated. Obrador's win effectively ended decades of two-party rule in Mexico. Key Republican Senator Susan Collins said she will not support a Supreme Court nominee hostile to Roe v. Wade, saying the matter is settled law. Trump and the Republicans are moving quickly to nominate a replacement for Justice Kennedy. He just thought he will nominate something willing to overturn the landmark decision that legalized abortion in the USA. And Ron Rosenstein was shaken, unsteady, and overwhelmed, and repeatedly expressed anger about how the White House used him to rationalize the firing of James Comey, according to new reports. Rosenstein said the experience damaged his reputation, according to multiple people familiar with his outbursts. In one of those conversations with the acting FBI director at the time, Andrew McCabe, Rosenstein became visibly upset. Day 529, July 2nd. Trump sent letters to the leaders of several NATO nations, including Germany, Belgium, Norway, and Canada, warning the USA is losing patience with their failure to meet security obligations shared by the alliance. The USA has consistently made up spending shortfalls by NATO allies as part of a grand bargain to keep peace in Europe and exert soft power. NATO allies have agreed to a benchmark of spending 2% of gross domestic product on defense. However, no NATO allies in arrears, and Trump's claims have been easily dismissed by NATO allies because they are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how the alliance works. Paul Manafort's personal assistant gave the FBI access to his storage locker in Virginia after a judge rejected Manafort's argument that Mueller had been improperly appointed. In addition, Mueller is now investigating links between Manafort, his Russian contacts, and the National Rifle Association. Mueller is investigating if they used the organization to illegally funnel foreign money to Trump's campaign. And Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany who once welcomed hundreds of thousands of migrants into the country, agreed on Monday to build camps for those seeking asylum and to tighten the border with Austria. That about face came as Merkel tried to save her government. Merkel remains chancellor, but now is gravely weakened in Europe. Day 530, July 3rd. Trump reached out to Mexico's new populist president-elect Andres Manuel López Obrador on Monday in an early show of detente, claiming the two leaders engaged in a good conversation about border security and NAFTA. Obrador has gone on record saying his nation will not be a pinata and that he would personally stand up to Trump. Trump interviewed four candidates to take Justice Kennedy's place in the Supreme Court as the White House raced to meet the president's self-imposed deadline. They were the federal appeals court judges Amy Coney Barrett, Brett M. Kavanaugh, Raymond Kethledge, and Amal Tapar of the Sixth Circuit. Samantha Dravis, who was a former policy chief of the EPA, told Congress that Scott Pruitt asked her to help find his wife a job as a fundraiser at the Republican Attorneys General Association. That fresh allegation comes on top of reports that Pruitt asked an aide to seek a business opportunity for his wife from the fast food franchise Chick-fil-A, that she received $2,000 from Concordia and a Manhattan-based nonprofit. Dravis declined the request. Pruitt also has been revealed as keeping a secret calendar to avoid disclosing publicly his meetings with oil and coal company officials. That avoidance of public record keeping is illegal. Pruitt was also confronted by a mother and her young son at a restaurant on Monday. The mother politely explained she hoped Pruitt would work on clean water for the sake of her young boy. He fled the restaurant instead. Trump has refused to lower flags to order the five victims of the Capitol Gazette shooting in Annapolis. Annapolis Mayor Gavin Buckley had requested the flags be lowered. Obviously, I'm disappointed, you know. Is there a cutoff for tragedy? This was an attack on the press. It was an attack on freedom of speech. It's just as important as any other tragedy. The flag is thrown at half-staff on federal buildings by presidential proclamation. It most recently flew after the shootings of 10 at a high school. It is unusual for a half-staff flag request to be refused. Trump's approval rating sagged again. They are now at 38%. These are the Trump Diaries.
Divisive spoke about the perils of celebrity on their latest episode. Craig Harshaw and Leah Gibson examined the fallout over Roseanne. Divisive spoke about the perils of celebrity on their latest episode. Craig Harsha and Leah Gibson examined the fallout over Roseanne Barr's racist tweets, how her show normalized Trump, and the responsibilities of public figures in this day and age. Divisive airs the third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. We're back, and we're still getting into it, even when we're on break. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted to say something about the Roseanne re- reboot, if I, okay. if I could, while we're... Uh, and and that was that the it really was an odd cultural anthropological. I only got up to episode seven before it got scrubbed, so that I wouldn't see the contaminated thing and get whatever disease I could get from watching Roseanne by Hulu. But um, I did watch the other two in kind of distorted versions on um, on YouTube. But the thing that most fascinated me about the first episode, the the premiere episode of the reboot, was that they made Jackie not be a Hillary Clinton voter, but a Jill Stein voter. And her reasoning for voting for Jill Stein was that (laughs) Roseanne had been so negative about Hillary Clinton because of her support for Trump that it confused Jackie so much. Okay, it's supposed to be set in Lanford, Illinois. Illinois was one of the bluest states of dark blue. But Jackie started crying. And I I, I don't know if we want to go into this. Lori Metcalf was giving a very, very, very different performance (laughs) than the performance she gave in the original. She was horrendous. And again, (laughs) I think this is also, though, again, this does tie back again to the celebrity factor, where it seemed like the show at times was trying to plug into the Roseanne-ness of it all. Oh, yeah. As opposed to what the original show had been, which was a show about a woman named Roseanne Connor, yes. which happened to be made by, and that's how it really began, Roseanne yeah. Roseanne Barr, I think she was at the time, or Roseanne yeah. Arnold. I forget if she had married She Tom was Barr Arnold. first. She was Barr first and then Roseanne Arnold, yeah. right. She didn't get, you know, so for instance, the famous thing about that show is that she didn't get writing credits originally, etc. Yeah, she was being, um, she was not getting a fair share mm-hmm. within te- within the television industry. But I think over that period of time of nine seasons, she went from being someone who couldn't even be given credit yeah. for being the writer of the show, the originator of the show, to becoming Roseanne, the celebrity. So yes. I think this weirdness around what happened in the first episode with Laurie Metcalf, who turns in this horrendous performance. And again, as Becky is so ferociously angry, Laurie Metcalf always had these these weird expressions on her face. Const- it was very weird how Well, there was like something wrong with Jackie. Something had happened to Jackie in the nine years. I mean, it was a very different Yes, her face, everything looked different. But it's again about the show having to contend with the enormous celebrity. And this again is right where we get into the terrain of How does celebrity connect to social issues and how does it amp it up for better or for worse? And what we're seeing is, you know, basically it exploded. It exploded for Roseanne. Yes. Uh And I only use her first name because I'm always I'm always confused about which last name she uses, not to claim any familiarity with her. uh, And because she does go by her first name. But, you know, it's it's yeah, those those boundaries have been blurred. It has everything to do with the nature of celebrity and Twitter, which perhaps is a celebrity unto itself, which is interesting, given that Twitter is not making money. Yes. 
Well, I, I think that one of the differences with the reboot is it, the primary driving force behind the reboot was actually Sarah Gilbert. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if that has something to do with almost the post the post Roseanne. Uh, They're trying to get out of that, yeah. the Roseanne-ness of it all. Yeah, get out of the Roseanne-ness of it all, but also comment on who Roseanne really is that the rest of the cast actually does find deplorable. So the, the, the other thing that was very conscious, I think, about trying to put this back together, and I don't know why Sarah Gilbert wanted to do it, but of trying to do this reboot um, was that the rest of the actors are all liberals. Not. And, and yeah. they're not celebrities. Yes. I mean, I guess I keep way. wanting to come back to that aspect of it, too. Yeah. You know, is it the case that the non-celebrity-ness So we see had, John Goodman right. and, and Laurie Metcalf as really great character actors, which is what right. Roseanne Barr says. About right, them, right, right. There's, yes, exactly. These are all, I mean, John Goodman has his own career, yeah. which is a fantastic career alongside, yes. you know, he's done work with the Coen Brothers, for instance, uh, as we all know, Big Lebowski and more, uh, Barton Fink, all of that. But, right, so they're not celebrities. In fact, uh, the actor who plays DJ, whose name I can't remember because he's not a celebrity. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Uh, but yes, I mean, just the, yeah, I'm just thinking about how the notion of celebrity overdetermines. But I want to come show. back, I want to come back as a devil again, because I've talked to, <laughs> <laughs> I've talked to Craig, and I feel like you all take different positions on your, you are in opposition to the show being canceled, and you support it, right, Craig? Am I getting that right? Um I support the show being, I mean, I'm okay with the show being canceled. I think the show being scrubbed is absolutely like that that's the part that like gets me it's so scrubbing. before we get to that because i think you both mm-hmm. agree on the scrubbing as a problem yeah mm-hmm. but the part that you're maybe not taking the same position on is whether or not the show should have been canceled it shouldn't have been canceled yeah. because i think that we if we are going to talk if we are as a society and again this i'm just trying to constantly say okay I'm not, this is about celebrity because x yeah. right i think that in the age of Trump, where we have a president whose career has come about entirely because of reality television, mm-hmm. who pretty much squandered his father's enormous fortune, et cetera, et cetera. So he's, he's a creature of television, creature of celebrity culture, as it were. Uh, in that age, we have to start have, we can't just have what the New Yorker critic Emily Nussbaum seems to want, which is perfect shows where everybody gives these yeah. little didactic speeches about how bad racism is. And I say this because it's one of the columns that Nussbaum wrote. I think I've got her name right. Nussbaum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, writes is, is this moment where uh, Roseanne's grandchild in the show and again, the conflation between Roseanne the celebrity and Roseanne on the show. But Roseanne's grandchild on the show uh, is really angry with her grandmother. And her grandmother's angry with her for perfectly good reason. And that's the other issue. The grandmother's angry because this kid isn't pulling her weight in the house. The, the grandparents have to deal with a multiplicity of people in a household. They're straining for money. And there's this kid who's just complaining that she's not in Chicago anymore. And at one point, the grandchild calls her a, a hillbilly, I think. Mm-hmm or a redneck or something. And Nussbaum's point in her critical, quote-unquote, appraisal of the show is, why didn't, you know, she should have gone even further and criticized her and, you know, and she basically writes this little speech on behalf of the grandchild, which is a very <laughs> woke speech about blah, blah. And what she's seven, I should say. No, no, this is the older grandchild. Oh, the older right, one. Right, okay, right, the right. white one. The, the, yeah, yeah, the, okay. the daughter, right, yeah, the, the daughter. older daughter. 
But, you know, Nusma wants the oldest, this older grandchild to essentially deliver a woke yeah. speech. So for me, it was important to keep the show mm-hmm. on so that we could have this constantly contested discussion of we live in a strange world that seems strange because we can't recognize the continuities between Obama's administration and yes, Trump's yes, administration, agreed. right? I agree with that. So immigrants, children being parted from them, you know, from their parents, babies being torn from the breasts of mothers, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, you know, we're not recognizing the continuities. If you don't yeah. recognize, and, and we're not recognizing how people stuck in the middle of places like Lanford, Illinois, or some parts of Chicago, Illinois, I might add, mm-hmm. are struggling ideologically and in their lives to come to terms with all of this. And what we have instead is a determination on the part of liberal commentators like Emily Nussbaum that what we need to res- is to respond to this sort of what we see as a new fascism with our woke, you know, remonstrations against it. You know, let's mm-hmm. all let's just talk against it and that'll end it. But what we actually need is to see it unfold and we need to have a really complicated conversation where we don't have the luxury of saying, I don't like what I see, so I'm going to shut it down.
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Mm-hmm.